Barbara Ann Garcia, healthcare advocate, strong woman athlete, and the host of Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold is a podcast dedicated to giving voice to everyday heroes and their untold health stories that can improve healthcare to our most vulnerable communities. Marco, welcome to Healthcare Untold. Thank you so much, Barbara. Good to talk to you. Wow, we've been talking for, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We're catching up, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. What and is- for the listening audience, we've been on the phone for about 45 minutes catching up. And just for the listening audience to know, just as a full disclosure, uh, mm-hmm. you know, my mom married Marco's uh, dad. Um, and so we were raised together, um, in the San Diego, uh, area. And, uh, and so I've always considered him my hermano and I've always been so proud of his work. And, you know, you've been such a passionate musician working in the industry for so many years, especially on the road, performing for large concerts to smaller venues. Uh, you're a famous bass player that's played in many bands and you're a wonderful solo artist as well. And uh, on a personal note, you have 33 years of sobriety. So, Marco, why don't you share with us and our listening audience about your a bit about your journey? Uh, first of all, thank you so much, man. I need to talk to you on a daily basis. I know. <laughs> we have to just catch but, up sooner and sooner. But, yeah, I, I've had my journey has been uh, just talking to you. Um, it's been just full of gifts, I have to say. Uh, you know, and I talk about this because it's, it's true. And I, I need to be reminded I'm only human and I, we're going through some some uh, different times, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to use the word struggle because, you know, I want to be positive and proactive. But uh, uh, things are changing in our world and, and we're all trying to do our best. But uh, my journey in the music business has been uh, filled with highlights. And uh, uh, let me put it this way. If somebody came to me when I started playing guitar at 14, 15 years old in Tijuana, uh, a guitar that my dad got us, got for us. And uh, uh, when you know, if somebody would said, you know, back then, you know, later on, you're going to be playing with so-and-so and so-and-so and, and started dropping some names, um, I would just not believe it. You know, um, it's... Uh, uh, my career has way exceeded my expectations in so many ways that I can't even tell. So I, I get excited to do these things because, uh, you know, you get reminded of where you've been. And uh, again, I'm only human and I tend to forget. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, I've always been one of those guys that's always looking forward. I'm well, especially, playing. you know, as a Mexicano, as a Latino, Marco, you know, you, mm-hmm. um, one of the few in, you know, uh, that I see in that rock industry, right? And mm-hmm. uh, and just a little bit of bands, you know, White Snake, Ted Nugent, you know, and so many others that you've been yeah. playing in Dead, Dead, Dead Daisies as well. So, Dead Daisies, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you've, uh, you know, you've played, um, you've made, you know, art your passion. And I think that's the important part of your story, you know? It is. Yeah. I, uh, you know, back, if you remember, um, we grew up in Tijuana. Um, my brother, Carlos, Linda, and myself, and we had two stepbrothers that moved on when my parents broke up. Um, but when that happened, when my parents separated, my grandma came to take care of us. She moved yes. in from Mexico City. Yes. And, and along with her came her piano. And so I want to say, yeah, I think I want to say I was five, six, seven years old, something like that. Um, And so I got exposed to music very early. You know, um, my father was a clarinet player, really good clarinet player. My uncle, Alex, a professional piano player. My my aunt, Maria Luisa, played piano. So obviously my grandma, their mom, made sure that they had she was, uh, uh, what's the word that I can use for her? She was just very talented, very passionate about life. Uh, she loved literature and art and music and all that. Uh, and she uh, she made sure that her kids got exposed to that. So when she came to live with us, the piano came along and all of a sudden she started having students and teaching piano. And I developed my ear and, and my taste for music. I learned how to listen to music through her. And so that's where it started, you know, but a lot of it had to do, the more I think about it, and I've been doing more interviews um, as time goes by, I was that kid that was very awkward. I was very insecure, very awkward. Um, 
a geek, if you will, uh, freckles, you know, and I have, I have this horrendous overbite my teeth. So I was very self-conscious about it and uh, very introverted, you know, um, and to make a long story short, I could talk about that forever, but <laughs> to make a long story short, the guitar became my friend because I could, yeah. the piano was there. I started playing a little bit, but the problem with the piano is that everybody else in the house could hear my mistakes or, uh, you know, um, uh, how slowly I would learn things and all that. It was in private. So uh, I was exposed and I wasn't, I wasn't digging that too much. You know, I learned enough through my grandma, but um, when the guitar showed up, I think my, my dad bought it for my brother. I was the middle child, by the way. So my right, brother would get right. all the gifts. I get all the hand-me-downs. But, uh, <laughs> right. And then my sister was a little princess. So I was in the middle going. And also a hey. wonderful singer as well, right? Linda was a yes. wonderful singer. Yes. And a great piano player. She was like being trained for to be a concert pianist, classical. And she was so advanced and so talented and amazing. But I saw what it required. It required a lot of work, hours and hours every day on the piano and the way they were grooming her my grandma was uh, you know you, there was a lot of discipline and a lot of hours invested blood sweat and tears and i'm like i don't know if i'm ready for that so anyway the guitar showed up uh and uh all of a sudden i started grabbing it after a little bit of time and uh i would find my way through the house little rooms or away in the back patio or something on the backyard and start strumming along and I learned there was a book the mail book uh, mail bay book of chords and um, uh, so I started learning and then I realized after learning three or four or five chords that I could play a lot of songs and I started learning more and more and more I, I think my father saw that interest uh, uh, in me and my brother and uh, my brother by then was showing more interest in the drums Right. And so, right. so we got, yeah, so we got a drum set for him, a guitar for me. He was, my dad was so cool. Like, renaissance he, he was man. the coolest man. He was a coolest He man. was a renaissance man. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And he was into photography. He played big band music, you know, in the house, Benny Goodman, uh, Glenn Miller. Uh, and uh, yeah, he was a cool dad. Mm -hmm. uh, so he actually also built, because as you can imagine, when you're a kid, you start playing music and especially with a drummer. Um, after a while, they're like, enough. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, he, so next to the house, he added a little... At the uh, little casita, huh? <laughs> yeah, a little studio. Yeah. We never soundproofed it, but it was enough to separate us from the main house. And so that became a little uh, studio working. And that's where I came from. You know, I came like a lot of kids and a lot of players these days. You start goofing around. You show interest, and the more uh, you know, the more interest you show, the more time you spent, and the more time you spend, you get better, and it becomes more fun. So I was, I was addicted. Boom, I was in. Yeah, you were doing and, the marching band in downtown in Tijuana. Remember in Tijuana? Yeah. Actually, yeah, that was. Oh, that's good that you bring bring that up. Because yeah, that was my, my actually first. My, actually, my first instrument was uh, a corneta, a, a, a bugle. Yeah, no valves. So, and if you got good enough, you got to be part of the school marching bands, you know, and uh, we took a lot of pride in that and uh, great times, man. Yeah. Uh, but that was my uh, introduction to performing live. And when you're in the parade, you know, you get, you get exposed. You're in a large group of people, but you still exposed. So you kind of get a taste of what it is to perform right. in front of, in front of an audience. And, uh, and long story short, it kind of got me out of myself in a big way, you know, all those insecurities and all that awkwardness and the introvert thing started uh, getting under control because it was my way of identifying with other people. And uh, so I became that kid that, that I, everywhere I went, I had a guitar right. I, everywhere. Right. Uh, so, you know, when people, I wasn't good at sports at all. So I'd go to, when my friends were playing, I'd go, to the games to play a little bit and then bail and grab a guitar and start playing music. And I was the kid that would, uh, uh, you know, fulfill requests. Why don't you learn this song, that song? And so that was my ID within the groups I was hanging. So 
so my brother and I start uh, with another two brothers. We start this garage band, and uh, it's a real long, long story. A lot of things happen, but let's just say I got really turned on to the fact that I, the enjoyment that music gave me was something I had never experienced. It was, it was, uh, it was my sanctuary. It was healing. It, it was very satisfying. I get so much, uh, very rewarding in so many ways that I kind of started spending more time, more time and, and hours and hours of learning songs. And I started singing. That was another phase. But um, after a while, we started playing uh, little gigs, you know, uh, around the neighborhood. And uh, there was another band that was far ahead of us in that they had two or three years of more experience and they had a van, they had transportation, they had a PA and uh, we always looked up to them, you know, cause they were well organized. So uh, I, uh, I got approached by them, their bass player um, split, something happened. He wasn't around and they had commitments. They had gigs, they were working a lot. They were doing the school gigs and more legitimate gigs, you know? And uh, so they said, you know, uh, we need somebody that can play bass and sing. And I and I and they asked me, can you play bass? I said yes. And I never played bass. By then I was only guitar, right? Um, so I told my dad, and my dad, this is the kind of cat he was. He he just took me, and we went to the local pawn shop and found a bass. Boom. <laughs> and within two weeks, I learned some of the songs, and I auditioned, and I got the gig, and all of a sudden. We're moving on to the next level, you know, uh, organized. The name of the band was Peace Association. My brother was part of that too. But by then my brother uh, moved to live with my mom in San Diego. Mm -hmm. uh, so he left that band and uh, he kind of he told me a few times he regretted that move because of the music, because mm -hmm. he saw where where these opportunities led, led, you know, it took me on a, on a long journey, you know, 40 something years later, I'm like, uh, this is my, uh, my career. Right. So, uh, so that's what happened. And I got recruited by another band that was national touring nationally all over Mexico and they had albums, they had names and, and, uh, I got recruited, ended up in Mexico city, living down there. I met my wife, I got married. I had two kids. And the rest is history. Uh, ended up getting another call when things slowed down there in Mexico, up in San Diego. And I came to San Diego and I did just about every venue you can imagine in San Diego I played. It's a trip. Uh, it was like a top 40 band, but with unbelievable talented musicians that were much older uh, and so much more experienced. So I, I, you know, I learned so much from all of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the the natural process uh, is to start moving and doing gigs in LA. I, there was a producer, Joe Porter, that um, grabbed a couple of us from that band in San Diego and brought us to LA. And we were we were recording, doing some great stuff, uh, and getting paid. And uh, so I saw the important part is that, getting paid. Yeah, the, the, yeah, exactly. Uh, I saw the difference. I knew and I realized that L.A. was going to be the place to be. Right. I saw the level of, uh, you know, uh, of the music business in L.A. as opposed to San Diego and Mexico and everywhere that I, I had been to. Uh, so, yeah, I think in the back of my mind, I'm going, I've got to move here at some point. And I'm not clear, uh, to be honest, by then I had to, I have to say I was drinking a lot. I was using a lot of drugs. It was part of my environment. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, they talk about, uh, Marco, that they, that, you know, there has been a public health crisis for, uh, people in the music industry for decades. Right. And yes. so many people. And now, lost, you know, yeah. And now I've been, I've been talking about, um, you know, my sobriety, you mentioned it, um, 33 years of sobriety, September 20th. So uh, proud of you, brother. Yeah, thank you. Um, 1987. Uh, but so this is all going on. I'm in L.A. I'm driving from San Diego. And uh, the, the, the schedule is just grueling, you know. So you learn how to medicate yourself and deal with everything. 
uh, long story short, my name started, I uh, obviously had something to offer because I started getting calls and I ended up in auditioning for some some cool cats. I auditioned for Lionel Richie, I auditioned for Cher. And uh, so I knew that I was growing in the business that my name was getting thrown around. Unfortunately, um, the the disease of uh, you know of addiction was just waiting for it for its opportunity to just blow up and i couldn't deal with the stress and the level of pressure you know when you're moving on mm-hmm. so i started medicating more and more and more and let's just say i ended up with a big big problem heroin cocaine iv and uh and everything else i could get my hands of alcohol you know painkillers meds whatever i could do uh and i hit a terrible bottom where I was basically just going out of control. And uh, I ended up in Las Vegas. That was a, in 1986. Uh, pretty much the bottom line, the way I look at it now, Barbara, it's I, I was pretty much just running, trying to run away from myself. I couldn't deal with, I had a lot of self-esteem issues. Uh, you know, I was, I was kind of lost. I wasn't grounded. I was, pretty much just existing, you know, you know, when you, when you get into that, I don't know if you have, but a lot of people in my circles, my business still to this day, they're just existing. They wake up in the morning and they need to medicate, you know, because that's all they know. And the more you medicate, the more you you're addicted to it and the more tolerance you build and you need more and more and more. And you know, one of the things they're finding Marco is that this is a brain disease. And yes, it's absolutely. your brain telling you, you better take something or, you know, you're going to die. And that's, yes. you know, the real drive around this as well. And so, and as science has caught up with us, you know, um, it's really important that, uh, you know, um, we recognize that, that, you know, it's an actual medical disease in your brain. Yes, we're, we're definitely wired um, differently, and I can attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're beautiful. Now I'm you're still beautiful. wired differently, but I'm sober. <laughs> I'm absolutely. You're still beautiful. You're just still you know, beautiful. Thank you. But uh, it's a trip. <laughs> I, uh, I was in Vegas, and I ended up pretty much walking the streets, talking to the wind with nowhere to go, nothing to do other than medicate myself. My life had become to that point, it got that low. Uh, and I could get in more into detail. So let's just say uh, it was lower than being in the sewer, uh, you know, the way I was existing, because that's that's all I was doing. I was mm-hmm. existing to medicate myself uh, to the point of oblivion. I just wanted to get into the stratosphere, not feel anything, not think about anything, not worry about anything. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's a trip. So my sister came to Las Vegas. My little angel, Linda, my sister Linda came to Las Vegas and she talked me into, she was the only one that could talk me into reacting. She said, come on, let's, uh, let's, go to, let's go to California. And she talked me into, I ended up in a treatment place here in, in Orange County. And... Um, you know, it was based on on the twelve step program, and that you go through detox and and all that. And let's just say again, that's a long story, long process. A lot of things happen, but in the back of my mind, this is how sick I was. I was thinking, you know, I'm tired of. I just need to. I need to rest. <laughs> I need to just uh, shut down. And so I'm gonna go with my sister to California and have a bed to sleep in, have some food, and and sleep forever. You know. And that's what they did, the detox you. That's like what they did. They give you a bunch of meds to uh, uh, put you down. And uh, I remember I used to sleep for 12, 16, 18 hours a day, mm-hmm. wake up, eat, and then ask for my meds and go to sleep again. But you got to remember that before that, I mean, there was months at a time where I would sleep very little, if that. Yeah. I, rem- I remember I would go two weeks at a time with no sleep right. whatsoever, none. So it was pretty bad. So I came out and I, the seed was planted. I saw the possibility uh, that I could, you know, I could put a few days together and stay sober, you know, and. Uh, well, treatment so, works. Treatment works. Yeah, it does. It even does. if it's a and little I, step at a time, right? Exactly. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it comes down to the individual. And let's just say I had a lot of reservations in the back of my mind. 
like I said, I, I just wanted to a change of pace. And I wasn't really into getting sober. I was just thinking, let me just take a break here. Okay. Uh, and in the back of my mind, I remember vividly saying, okay, let me take a break. I'm going to get my life together. And then I can start, maybe I can start selling and make more money. And I wasn't even thinking about music at all. My career, you know, I had burned every bridge and I had a bad reputation and people just were not calling me anymore because I would show up unprepared or late or, uh, you, you know, or not show up at all, all of the above, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the, the music business is, uh, they're very small circles that you work in, you know, the, the, repu- the, the word gets out right away. Right. Uh, so that, came to a screeching halt and it was about, okay, let me get sober. Let's, let's see what I, where I can go with it. But I wasn't ready. My spirit, my heart, in my heart and my gut, I was not ready to, you know, willing to, to, to go to any length to stay sober. And that's what you need to do mm-hmm. for me. So after that, I put eight and a half months of sobriety. I was told by my sponsor not to start playing music because it was a dangerous environment for me to be in. And I could understand that. Now I understand it. But against all advice and peers and friends and all that, I, I got a, I got an offer to do a couple of weeks uh, of work in Las Vegas, out of all places. Yeah. And, and uh, it was just a matter of days. I went there, I set myself up for, for, uh, uh, you know, for a relapse to be on. When I look back to mm-hmm. it, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. you put yourself in that environment, you know where your connections are, you know what to do, how to do it. And uh, I went to a few meetings the first week, I got the first, my first check with a pocket full of money, and then the brain started going. Uh, and I started lying to myself, and um, you know, telling myself, I can go out and, and, uh, you know, indulge for a few days and get clean, go, go back to California and just tell everybody I was fine and still sober. Well, it didn't work. It didn't work for me. It, it's, we talk about it in the 12 step program about, about it being a, an inside job, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's something that's got to come from within. Uh, and I just wasn't there. I was lying to myself. I thought I was lying to everybody else. Everybody else knew what was up, you know, the day, when I made that decision to take that gig, I was setting myself up, you know, yeah. for relapse. And it happened. So in retrospect, I know exactly what I was doing. But when I was you're in the middle of it, you're just moving day to day, hour to hour. And that's what happened. So eight and a half months of sobriety, down the drain, I came back. Uh, I hooked up with a couple of people that were just they were just doing some horrendous things and I hooked up with them and I fell into that hole. Um, I got busted and uh, I got, I had a chance to get sober. Um, September 20th of 1987, a year after it's a trip. But by then, let's just say I, w- I had struggled and I was, I was to the point where I was tired of being tired and uh you know, there was no hope. I, I just totally gave up on myself and anything, you know. And so I remember I was in jail and I, I got on my knees and, and prayed uh day before I went in front of the judge. And I cried, you know, like a little girl and just folded. And I remember in that prayer saying, you know, God, please take over. I, I can't. I, I've been I've been doing a terrible job here. <laughs> I'm going to end up dying or worse, you know, uh, not dying and suffering like I was. And this, this is a, as a result of a little bit of clarity because by then you're in jail, you kind of have a little bit of sobriety, right. the fog, the fog lifts and, and you see, you know, you have that, that, that moment of lucidity that you got, you kind of look at your life and where you've been and what, where you've been and what it become, you know? Uh, and so, uh, yeah. So later on, I realized that I was surrendering right. to the fact that I was sick and I needed help. I couldn't do it for myself, so I needed help, outside help. 
And from that moment on, from that second where I totally surrendered, that's what I talked to people in recovery about. I said, it's about surrendering to the fact that you can't do it and things are out of control. Things have become unmanageable, you know, the first step and the second step is, you know, uh, you made a decision to turn your will and your life over to a power, higher power. For me, it was God. And then the third step, you know, you actually do that on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis, right? you know, and uh, so that was it. I got uh, court appointed to go to Impact uh, and I got an abuse uh, appointed, which is the alcohol block thing, you know. Right. Uh, and then medication uh, that doesn't make uh, you feel good if you drink. If you drink, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then uh, Trexan. In those days, it was called Trexan. It was an opiate blocker. Mm-hmm. So let's just say the way I, le- I, I, I like to look at it is like I, I, it was divine intervention in my life so that I could get, get a few months of sobriety, a few years. Uh, by only just getting out of myself and following direction, you know. And so impact was a great incentive because you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't use, there was no drugs being, uh, you know, there was no drugs presence there. Nobody could bring them in. It was a lot done. It was like being in jail with a lot of structure, a lot mm-hmm. of discipline. Mm-hmm. You do you do three meetings, 12-step base meetings a day. And so you build up, you know. A lot of structure, a lot of responsibility. And I was there for nine and a half, 10 months. Uh, after that, I came out and got myself into a halfway house. And and then the rest is history. You know, I started uh, Well, working. you should be really yeah. proud of yourself, brother, because, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to do. And, um, you know, um, people do relapse many times in the recovery. Yes. And, you know, yeah. it's part of the disease process. And, you know, you really worked hard at getting sober. Yeah. I, yeah. And, and to be honest, you know, for the longest time, I didn't want to take any credit. And even now I try not to because, because in reality, when I even just talking about it, I, I mean, the, all the control was taken away from me. And that's why, to me, it was God intervening in my life saying, all right, you need some heavy help here. Well, God's a good place to start. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, and it's it's the higher power of your Absolutely. choice. Just to realize that there's a higher power out there that can help you and take all the weight off of your shoulders. And and uh, and so that's what happened, you know. But But, yeah even talking about it to you and my mind, uh, I got reminded of how bad it was out there. I have the, the pictures, these pictures in my head that were insane, Barbara, the mm-hmm. things I was doing insane. Uh, you know, it was a matter of days or hours or weeks where I would have been, I would have OD'd or died somewhere. You know, uh, I was suicidal. Uh, I, I was everything you can imagine where a human being can be at, at, at the lowest point in their life, I was there. Yeah. The only thing that was keeping me from bailing was the medication, and medication in any form, heroin, pills, uh, alcohol, you know, uh, pot, all of it, all of the above. Right. Uh, uh, and so it was just a way for me to get out, out of my own skin because I couldn't deal with who I was anymore, you know. It was painful living in my own skin. So that's what happened. So I am proud and I, I it's important for me to share the message and talk about it. Um, my meetings have gotten to an all-time low and uh, especially now with the pandemic, it's getting harder and harder to do meetings. But this is a meeting for me when I share my my experience, my strength and hope, you know. But for anybody that's listening out there, uh, I, I can't stress that enough. Yeah. It's about realizing that you have a problem. That's the biggest and the hardest step to realize that you have an issue with whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, compulsive, obsessive behavior. It can, uh, it can manifest itself in so many different ways. You know, I, you know, I have them all, man. <laughs> I can, I can obsess uh, over food. I can obsess over sex. I can uh, be compulsive about it. I can, uh, you know, I started working out when I got sober. I was obsessive about it i mean to the point where i was hurting myself you know my knees and my my knees can attest to that (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> it's so true. But um, so anybody that's listening out there, you know, uh, we've come so far in the recovery. Yes, uh, absolutely. The department, and there's so many things available to all of us uh, to reach out and help. And uh, it's just, that's the hardest thing to do, to realize that you have an issue. Um, if you're even wondering that you might have a problem, guess what? In my opinion, you're either you're either in, in the beginning of it or you're all in and you're, you know, that's that's a symptom right there. Right. You know, denial is right. part of it, part right. of the symptom. So, um, and as you say, you know, there's so many new medications and there really are uh, new medications for, you know, opiate use. Um, buprenorphine is one of those, Marco. That, is that one of the know, blockers now? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and one of the things that's so um, uh, good about it is that it makes people feel much better pretty quickly. And, um, you know, it's uh, in pill form. They can and they can go to their primary care doctor. It's kind of got destigmatized. Seriously? Yes. You oh can go to gosh. your primary care doctor and many primary care doctors are now uh, prescribing buprenorphine where before you'd have to either get into methadone with a whole yes. other process um, yes. or get into, you know, the ER room where they would, you know, stabilize you um, and, or hospitalized, right. For those yes. kinds of events. And now it's mm-hmm. become much more outpatient and um, you know, uh, we really developed a lot of those programmings in San Francisco area. Um, awesome. and yeah. So science is getting better and it's stigmatizing um, for seeking out, treatment as it has been in the past you know yeah yeah yeah. that's so cool i gotta i gotta stay on top of that well you can imagine 33 years i'm into uh uh into talking about recovery spring strength and hope and that's it's all so I beautiful can. my we, own experience absolutely 12-step program has been so effective for many, many it people. saved my life it saved my life you know and and uh, to this day i use the principles you know uh of it you know the serenity prayer, as I have it, I'm looking at it right now. That's all the answers are there for me. Uh, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Beautiful. I mean, it's all there. Right. Boom. Beautiful, beautiful. If, if I apply that to, uh, you know, every day, every moment, every hour when I'm struggling with anything and uh, you know, I'm I'm a grown up now. I'm supposed to be a grown up. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my brother's still like 20 years old. I know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> He's got I get it. In, you know spirit. what? In my brain, in my heart, I'm still absolutely. That's, that's I, why I love I, you so much. You're you're really such a wonderful man. In thank that. you, Barbara. And yeah. you, what what a, what an amazing person you are, man. Well, thank you, thank you, bro. You, I hope I hope you get all the credit that you deserve because people like you make a difference. You Thank know, we you. were talking about it earlier, but it's true. Uh, and I've come across quite a few people in my recovery that are making a difference. And my hats off to you and all the love and respect to you, Thank um, you. a million times. Thank you. Thank but, you. But, and, but listen, I mean, you know, uh-huh. from from this period of time, as you go into sobriety, you know, you just start blooming again as a as a musician. Yeah. So so to pick up eighty seven. Uh, I ended up working uh, in, up in, in L.A., uh, in, in the Valley, uh, in a little restaurant. And I started, it was, imagine this. This is another thing that was very humbling for me and put things in perspective. When I talk about it, I get chills. Imagine this. Imagine uh, my peers showing up to this restaurant where I was. I wasn't even waiting tables. I was busing tables. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people knew me. I had a reputation. I had a bit of a name. I accomplished a few things in the business. So, uh, yeah, that was talk about it, humbling, man. And I was staying on a friend's couch, Kevin Cloud, who is also an amazing person, who saw me at, uh, at my worst, you know. And he, uh, I, I think we we touched each other, and we stay in touch. He's a great guy, great drummer, amazing drummer. Anyway, I was staying there through his. Circles of people I found this gig, and because that was one of the requirements, you have to work, uh, you have to become responsible and grow up. I never thought I would start playing music because, again, because it was bad. Uh, you know, the way I left, it was pretty bad. Uh, reputation was at the worst that you can imagine, and I had let so many people down, and people were not going to take a chance. Long story short, People, producers, songwriters, musicians, they're, I'm like, 
busing tables where these people are coming. It was a popular oh, yeah. place there yeah. in North in North Hollywood. And uh, uh, I met I met a few people that kind of recommended my name to this musical director. They had an offer to do a gig uh, at a rap party for uh, Dirty Dancing, the movie. Yeah. So that takes you back. It was a rap party for that movie, and uh, they needed a band. And for some reason, my name got in thrown in there somewhere. They couldn't find who they regularly use or call. And I got the call. And, I, you know, I pretended like I had a bass. I didn't have a bass. And uh, I pretended I was ready. And I was so nervous. Okay. It was the first time playing music sober, you know. I couldn't remember the last time I, I did anything, performed in any way sober so that was quite um that was quite a uh what a it's what an experience that was man talk about being back i was back to being a teenager when i started playing music where i was so nervous to play in front of an audience with no medication with no anything i just paralyzed so i was in that i was back there again uh and uh maybe a few more years of experience and and I was just, I knew that regardless of what happened with anything in my life, I was i was not going to use, period, on a daily basis. No matter what happens today, I'm not going to use or drink or do anything uh, that's mind-altering uh, to keep me from experiencing all that. So, you know, I remember praying in the bathroom, man. Uh, I got up there. I. It sounds like I did a good job because... After that gig, you know, I got through it. I started getting calls and and then start working on my my good side of the reputation. And you know, before you know it, I'm uh, I'm back back on the horse and and getting calls from everybody. And uh, uh, and then uh, yeah, it's it's been a great journey, great experience. And I it, there's so many details and so many things, so many emotions and. And so many walls that I hit along the way that um, one of these days I'm going to have to talk about it and put it, write it down, you know, because that's part of. Uh, well, you can just go re- back, go back to this podcast, and you know, you got yes. a lot, a lot there too in details. Yes, and, yes. you know, um, and I did talk about in your intro the number of bands that you've uh, played with, and mm-hmm. do you want to highlight any of those bands that you know you well, really have enjoyed um, working with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, after I got I got sober, I was in the valley. I was in, running in circles. I remember uh, working with Al Jarreau. I remember working with Edgar Winter. We did the Tonight Show with Edgar Winter. Um, John Sykes from Blue Murder, who comes from White Snake and Thin Lizzy, came to one of the gigs I was playing at, and, uh, and so I became part of Blue Murder, the second album, and so on and so forth. He introduced me to the Thin Lizzy. Uh, band the remaining members after phil lynn had died yeah. and got me to audition for the boys and i got the gig uh and so yeah 22 years in that camp off and on uh and uh, and that was my connection to the rest of the world the music world you know i started getting calls from i got a call from the santana camp uh, went up there and auditioned and that was another great experience, you know. Yeah. Had, well, you I, know, Santana's from Tijuana. And so, yes, right? Exactly. From the same yeah, yeah, yeah. groups that you probably played with. Yes. Mm-hmm. A lot of those people, a lot, the percussionists. Uh, well, you know, when you start playing with a lot of these projects, you kind of start coming across each other. Right. You get to that level. Yeah, it's a community the, for perc- sure. It's a community. And then I had a, I had a solo project. I've always had a side project where, I can indulge musically and I can challenge myself. Uh, and it was Joey Heredia on drums and Renato Neto on keyboards. And these guys have played with everybody. You know, Renato ended up with Prince. He played with Rod Stewart, uh, Joe Bonamassa, to name a few, and many others. Uh, and Joey played with everybody, you know, too. Uh, everybody you can imagine. Um, I think he did Herb Albert, played with Stevie Wonder. Um, Tower Power, uh, um, Scott Henderson, uh, to name a few. I had that project, and through that project, we leaned a little bit on the Latin jazz side of mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. and we included some salsa numbers because he's 
Joey is a brilliant uh, drummer, you know, so he lived there. And him and I, when we met, man, when we played together for the first time, I just fell in love with his playing. And then later on with him, he's such a, he's like my brother, you know, mm-hmm. we spent so many years on the road and doing so many things. That's another book. But, um, and <laughs> also Hinato. Got to get the encyclopedia, Kevin. <laughs> exactly. And the Hinato too, you know, that ended up putting so many years with Prince and that was a brilliant gig for him. But, um, so in those circles, uh, Sheila E would come in, right? Sheila E from, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or Sheila e. would, 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 would come in and play with us. And then after a while, she would bring Rhonda, the bass player for Prince, Rhonda, and they would come into my gig. We had a, every Tuesday night, we play at this, this gig in the Valley on Ventura Boulevard in Whitsitt, Lava Lee, it was called. Uh, I had a Tuesday night there guaranteed anytime I wanted it. So I started booking it when I was at home, not touring or busy. I played there and we became a little bit of a bus uh, in the circles in the industry. And uh, so Sheila came in, would come in and play and sit in. We had a blast. She would, she brought Rhonda, uh, the bass player and then, and then Kat, the guitar player from Prince and quite a few people. And then finally Prince came in and a couple of times and, and recruited Hanato is the keyboard player, which ended up being a great gig. But anyway, it was one of those gigs where everybody uh, uh, would come in. Chaka would come in, Chaka Khan would come in, sit in. And so I was doing that gig when John Sykes came in and told me about Blue Murder, which I was a big fan of that, that first album with Tony Franklin playing fretless bass. I have a passion for, for fretless and uh, Carmine Peace on drums. It's a great band. So they were like going their own way. And he came in, he needed a bass player. He had a drummer and, uh, and that was it. So that kind of got me back on the rock and roll arena, if you will. Uh, my name started getting around. But before that, I have to say, I forgot about this. When I first got sober, one of the first gigs playing, uh, not live, but recording was Bill Ward, the drummer for Black Sabbath. Wow. He was getting sober, and I met him in a meeting, a 12-step meeting. We started looking at each other, knew who he was, and and uh, we started talking to each other. And 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 one day he told me, he's, I'm working on my my first solo album ever, and I would like to have sober cats around me. And would you consider coming to the studio and checking it out? I said, yeah, you know. So got my got my hands on a bass and went to the studio, and I ended up playing on this album. So, oh, that's so that great. Was, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was obviously, you know, Bill Ward, Black Sabbath, that was another level. And that helped to kind of get my, my number and my name, uh, you know, spread around a little bit. So, but there's so many things like that happened back to back, back, Barbara. It was like, it was obvious to me that I was being, you know, there was a lot of gifts that were sent my way. And all I had to do was to stay sober. And by staying sober, I, you know, I took responsibility for, you know, the opportunity of having music as a livelihood for me, you know, so I started respecting it. I started doing my homework. I started growing. I started showing up on time. (laughs) Uh, I I would probably do a good job because I, you know, I would get calls back. So, uh, yeah, you know, anywhere in life, man, the, the, the reality for me was that I was impeding myself. Uh, it was preventing myself from from reaching a better potential. Maybe not my full potential, but a better potential. And uh, when I realized that, it, it just uh, you know, I I kept staying sober, 24 hours a day, a day at a time. All of a sudden, I was celebrating two years of sobriety and five years of sobriety and uh, 10 and 20. And I got to tell you, um, the longer I stay sober the more rewarding life is to me. I, let's just say, you know, that um, I'm not perfect, not by a long shot, and I'm still human, and I have my, uh, uh, you know, I have my uh, uh, emotional roller coasters that I go through, especially now we're being tested in such a heavy way, you know. Uh, but um, I, my message is I don't, I will not medicate myself under any circumstance. I don't want to. I have no desire. 
the pain is so fresh in my mind of where I was 33 years ago, and I want to keep it that way. And so that's the message that yeah, I share with yeah, people. Yeah. But 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 also, you got to understand that the environment I work in, we're working with personalities, people right. that, you know, with big egos and very talented folks, and they know who they are, or they think, and and one of the big is, the biggest issues is that they're bigger than life and they can control anything. That's the big issue right there. Right. So, so for me to start preaching is the wrong thing. Right. To right. Do. Right. I, but you I are walk, who you are, and I yeah. think that is, uh, you know, a big uh, image for people to look up to in many ways. I mean, yeah. Right? It's yeah, exactly, and yeah. it's important to identify like this. Right. So exactly. anytime I'm approached, every time I'm in, I'm approached to. Uh, to do anything like this, I'm absolutely gonna. I just did one for uh, a live radio thing in, in the UK because they're going through right now, there's a lot of numbers, a lot of people struggling, you know, emotionally, right. spiritually, psychologically, right. uh, and uh, financially. So, yeah, it, let's, it's, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, you know, um, I have followed you on Instagram for years, well, for how long you've been on Instagram, and you yeah. know, I've been amazed of you know, you being around the world and then. This happens, COVID-19, and I, I mm-hmm. was like, oh, my God, you know, this is really going to have an impact on you. Um, and I know we've been talking about that um, in the recent uh, last couple of days and in terms of, you know, um, you have a positive attitude about where we're going. But at the same time, you know, you uh, your gig stopped and um, that has also stopped your income coming in, you know. Yes. Um, yeah. And for everyone, not just you. Right. Um, yeah. And so the music industry has been so de- devastated by this. Absolutely. It's I don't think uh, my circles of people that I know, I don't think that. Uh, anybody's experiencing anything like this. So this is definitely uh, a time to kind of take a look at, uh, you know, how you're going to survive and, and and reinforce the fact that this is something, I, for me anyway, this is a way what I like to think is this is something that's going to pass. Right. We just don't know when. Right. <clears throat> and so uh, uh, I'll tell you, social media is uh, is can be an enemy to me because as human beings, we tend to be very pessimistic, focus on the negative stuff. And one thing that I've had through sobriety, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, one thing I've had in sobriety that's kept me going is <clears throat> the attitude of gratitude. You know, yes. and by talking about it, yes. I can start focusing on uh, little things, the things that I do have, as opposed to right. things that, are, right. that I and, don't. And, you know, I had a, a mental health professional on my um, uh, the podcast and they talked about being grateful um, enhances the immune system yeah. and so you know being grateful for all the things and all the beauty that has been brought to you um, in terms of your incredible um, you know music career um, and you know my brother is like one of the most talented bass players in the world and uh, I want to you know say that because as uh, particularly as a Mexicano and Latino in this country um, you know um, it's it's harder for us in many ways and um, you kind of you know you blew that that whole industry away with the work that you've done and uh, I really just want to acknowledge that. Thank you I I have a difference of opinion because I know (laughs) Uh, the people I look up to uh, as that's far as okay. talent. That's I, my opinion. I, it's my podcast. I know that's and I respect <laughs> it and I appreciate it. Thank you so much. You know I mean? You're, but, uh, I, I'm grateful. But, <laughs> but as far as, you know, you know what it is to answer that. And one of the reasons why, like you're saying, I, I blew those doors out because, and another thing that I owe to my dad, my, you know, the way we were brought up, we never saw color. Yeah. At home, we were a bicultural, bilingual home. We we by national by national home by national we we spoke Spanglish yeah we moved from both countries from both Tijuana to San Diego just like in a a minute (laughs) exactly and we were so culturally um, I was exposed to the good things in the U S yeah and the good things in Mexico and so to be honest when I came to live here I was so far away from you know uh, the racial problems that we're having and I'm just not there. So, uh, and I never, you know, I even uh, wasn't aware of my own, you know, skin color or my heritage or whatever. I knew I was Mexican Spanish, 
Mendoza, and I've dug into it, and we even have some European, we all do. We all do, the mestizaje, the mestizaje. Yeah, very mestizo, but (laughs) I don't think I ever, that was part of the reason why I kind of like just walked through it without acknowledging it, uh, and and I was able to do it because I wasn't plugged into that side. Yeah. It's by living in the U.S. have I been exposed to um, how much help we need in those departments. I'm like, oh, geez. Yeah. Really? Really? Yeah. I don't even, don't even get me started because uh, it's so sad that we're going through all this. But I wanted to get back to the, the, the question about the industry and the pandemic. The reality is for me personally, I can only talk for me. I can only imagine where other people are at as far as uh, financially or whatever. For me, it's been all a gift, a, a blessing. For me, I've way exceeded all my expectations. If I was told today I wasn't able to play a gig for the rest of my life, I, I wouldn't be happy, but I would accept it and, and start looking at where I've been and my accomplishments and how lucky I've been to have shared you know, music with all these cats, man, legendary cats yes. and bands and projects. And so that's part of the attitude of gratitude. That's what keeps me going. I'm like, you know, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for where I've been. Nobody expected to go through what we're going through right now. Right. Uh, I have, uh, let's just say, living and, and working in this environment, you learn how to kind of uh, protect yourself against downtime because it's part of the lifestyle. Yeah. Feast or famine. Right. That's how it, it's been for me anyway. Yeah, yeah uh, for sure. And then, and, and then I have a run of, six years that are great, a run of 10 years that are great. And then you have two years that are slow. So uh, these past five, six years have been amazing. You know, hanging out with the dead daisies have been great. And I've been able to, uh, my dad used to talk about this cushion, financial cushion, you know, put some money away for lean times when it gets slows down. So I've learned to navigate that. That's good. So, That's good. so we're okay. I mean, I didn't expect it to be this long. Hurry up. Come on. We need to work. <laughs> but, uh, right. but I'm, I'm the upside is I am spending so much time with my kids. I was going to say, I was going to say, my you family know, and my wife is always that maybe upside. too much, maybe too much. <laughs> they want me out of here, man. They want you on the road again. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter comes. Uh, I said, look at dad. Do you have any tourists coming up? <laughs> <laughs> But uh, oh, well, you will, you will, you will. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm. I'll tell you, my job consists of staying in touch with uh, as many people as many people yeah, as I can. Yeah, I can imagine. In, you the, know? in my in my uh, my circles of people yeah, I work with, agents, absolutely. musicians, clubs, venues, tour managers. Well, the whole you know, thing. everybody's in it together, and that's you know one yeah. of the the things that we have to do is to keep you know, in communication and uh, zooming, zooming and, you know, all the things that, and I see you're still active in Instagram and um, I Uh, think those are important. Very important. And I'm, you know, again, I'm starting to consider doing some kind of uh, uh, streaming situation. I I didn't want to do it. I was in the middle. I got caught in the middle of my, my latest album, uh, and um, I want to, one of my goals is to be able to finish that album, announce the release date and get a few singles out so that I can get busy promoting and, uh, you know, and performing and all that. So that's coming Yeah. Uh, sooner than I, I think it's going to happen sooner than, than I think it's starting to open up. Uh, if things keep, if we keep wearing our masks, and stay and keeping uh, our distance away yeah, from absolutely. Thank situations. You yeah, no, thank it's you very true. Mm-hmm. Very true. If if we all take responsibility of the unknown, that's what it is. That's that gray area. You know, you can't analyze it. And every source of information that we get is uh, the one thing is contradicting the other, and it's saying this. So it's a big gray area where uh, you know uh, if we're not trusting the information that we hear, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I know I realize I fall in, into that category from time to time, but nevertheless, I, uh, I, I have enough info 
to not want to take a chance. Well, so, and we know that masks work and we know that yeah. distance works. That's um, where you come in and you give your info out. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, give, you're also doing it. Out. You're also doing it for me today. You're, you're yeah. also being a health person as well. Well, you know, yeah. Marcos, you know, uh-huh. it's been a wonderful time talking to you and um, I'm you. so proud of you and you're such a talented musician and, you know, you'll get back on the road again and uh, make yeah. those beautiful music and um, we're hoping that uh, on this podcast we're going to put some of your music on on the beginning on the end because i want people Please to do, hear yeah. and uh i'm one of your greatest uh and biggest fans and thank uh, you marco mendoza marco mendoza i love you and thank you Barbara. for being being Garcia. who you are being who you are <laughs> Muchas gracias. thank you i love you Barbara. Love i'm you really too. proud of you too honey i'm proud and of you thank you marco mendoza you. okay mi amor